Hey, Miles. Hey, Cam. Have you ever heard of La Boheme? Ah, uh, Maria Alibamba. Maria Alibamba. Mm, not quite. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inconceivable Media. I'm your host, Cam. And I'm Miles. And this week, I got to introduce Miles to the wonderful world of opera with the classic La Boheme by Puccini. <clears throat> Originally premiering in 1896, La Boheme is a four-act opera where we follow several young adults in 19th century Paris that are living the bohemian lifestyle. So, Miles... What were your thoughts on your first opera experience? Well, I still think the genetic opera is a real opera, but uh, <laughs> in, in comparison here, I actually really liked this one. Um, I felt it was somewhat relatable. The characters were really well done. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I thought I would be a little annoyed about is the constant singing, because I don't like musicals that much, <laughs> but it was actually really good. It was... Uh, I don't want to say, use the term bearable because it was actually good. <laughs> well, that's... It, it, was, it, it was enjoyable is the term I guess I'll use. I'd say that's a pretty good endorsement for your first time, especially, as you just said, if you're not already a fan of musicals, um, which kind of leads me to my follow-up question. So how would you compare it to other musical experiences you've had in the past? So you 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 compared this to Repo already. Yes. Um, so what are some other things that you have uh, seen, heard, or whatever? Like what musicals have you heard or seen? Well, everybody's heard a uh, high school musical. Unfortunately, I've been oh, okay. uh, dragged through that a few times, and uh, it's pretty terrible. <laughs> uh, what about, I don't know, anything by like Andrew Lloyd Webber or something? Well, oh, actually, maybe that's not a good place to go, because... That would lead us to something like cats, which you just Nobody we don't we don't need that. to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So what about something like Les Mis or Sweeney Todd or anything like that? Have you ever? No? I've seen them, but I've like I said, I'm not a big fan of the musicals. It's okay. I don't know what it is about them. They seem really lackluster to me. Hmm. Like either they're trying to be something they're not, mm -hmm. or they're they're just taking music. And trying to just put it in where where uh, even poetry could be instead of music. Okay. And it just, to me, it doesn't feel like it fits. Hmm. As opposed to, so here everything just works is what you're saying. Oh, right? absolutely. It worked very well. It flowed into each other nicely even after uh, scenes would end and others would begin. <laughs> it uh, It felt very... Kind of organic? Yeah, organic. Way? It yeah. wasn't mechanical. It was organic. Okay, so would you recommend this to other people, and how would you recommend it to them? Well, I would actually recommend this to other people. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's an excellent story, especially for people who, like me, have never really heard of opera, or their only real experience with opera would be like the Phantom of the Opera, which is a pretty big pill to swallow. <laughs> <laughs> this was a lot more light and enjoyable okay 
So, uh, so you wouldn't necessarily uh, approach a recommendation in a certain way. Like you wouldn't just go up to someone and say, "Oh, you really like music. Well, I think you should check out this opera." You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You don't feel that you would have to do that. You would just kind of be like, "You should watch this," or "You should hear this. It's really good." Yeah. Okay. That sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's honest, you know, seeing as how this is stuff that I do to get paid for. It's always nice to hear that from someone who would be in the audience just say, oh, yeah, I'll just go tell people to go see it. That's that's great. That's something that I love. I wish I heard more often. <laughs> I'll say that. Um, so we're going to take a break and then uh, we're going to come back and we'll dive into this a little bit more. So um, if anybody wants to, there are actually quite a few um, productions that you can choose from on YouTube, actually. Um, or if you want to, you can get a free trial for live at the Met online, and you can watch this and many other operas as well. So uh, go and take a look, take a listen, and uh, then come back to us. Okay, welcome back everyone. So now we will dive a little bit more into what actually happened in La Boheme. And uh, just so that everyone else is aware of which specific production we watched, uh, we watched the 2018 production that was done through the Metropolitan Opera House. And this production had Sonia Yoncheva as Mimi, Michael Fabiano as Rodolfo, Susanna Phillips as Musetta, Lucas Meacham as Marcello, Matthew Rose as Colline, and Alexei Lavroy as Lavrov, pardon me, as Chonard. Act one, we're introduced to the four bachelors, uh, Rodolfo, Marcello, Colline, Chonard, in their drafty loft, and we get to hear about their woes, specifically money-related. Chonard brings some happiness and money. So everyone decides to leave, but Rodolfo, he, he decides to stay home and work. Uh, but lucky for him, that's how he meets Mimi. And then they fall in love. Aww. Act 2. Rodolfo and Mimi have joined up with the others in a nearby cafe to celebrate. And everything seems to be going well until Musetta, Marcello's on-again, off-again lover, shows up and crashes the party. And then we move on to Act 3, where Marcello, Musetta, and Rodolfo are hanging out at an inn outside Paris, just doing what they do, which is staying alive in whatever way they can. Suddenly, a noticeably sick Mimi shows up to talk to Marcello about why Rodolfo seems distant and cold towards her. After a slight argument between Rodolfo and Marcello, Rodolfo admits that he's acting this way because he knows Mimi is dying, and he would rather have her live with someone rich than to die in poverty with him. So while Rodolfo and Mimi make a final tryst to stay together for at least a little while, a fiery argument breaks out between Musetta and Marcello again. And they break up, and as the clone high announcer would say, for real this time. Fucking love clone high. <laughs> <laughs> Act four, we return to the loft. 
as a heartbroken Marcelo and Rodolfo try to console each other over their lost loves. Swart, Schonard, <laughs> and Colleen also try to cheer them up. But then Musetta arrives with Mimi, and it looks like it will be it for her. The five try their best to make her last moments comfortable, but unfortunately, life sucks. And in this case, you die. Yes, as opposed to what they say in BoJack Horseman, right? Life sucks and it carries on. Well, I guess life sucks and it does carry on for the other five, but not so for Mimi. All right, so we'll dive into this a little bit more. Um, So how would you describe your experience, Miles? Going just like going through listening to everything and watching everything like what was going through your mind well that's a very tough thing because i uh i like to when i'm watching something new especially uh, like a whole new media form that i'm really not very well known to Mm -hmm. i go in with just no expectations and i don't really want to compare it to too much feel like that's a good way to approach things. Because, like, yeah, I don't want to be like, well, this is no something spectacular, right? Like, this is no, uh, what, what's, what that, would what's you that com- term? What would you even compare this to, though? Exactly. That, that's just, it. like, this is no uh, space odyssey like Dune or something like that, I guess, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I suppose, yeah, space opera, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the opera I know. The ones where they don't actually sing at all, but... <laughs> But anyways, uh, so yeah, I went into this not expecting anything and just wanted to see where it takes me because uh, even though I don't always seem it, I'm actually a very emotionally driven person and I like to get swept up in the emotion of it all. And uh, they start off very strong with it, with the two guys talking to each other and kind of like getting everything figured out. Third guy comes along, they establishing their, their characters mm-hmm. extremely well. And I really like how they did that. Uh, in the first two acts where they get all the characters laid out and uh, kind of tell you about everything. I also did like uh, the way that this is in a different language, mm-hmm. but the subtitles at the bottom are broken up to tell you what they're talking about without actually saying every single word they say. I did notice, and you remember me saying like, oh, they probably did an idiom here because they're not actually translating it, right? Yeah. And uh, you're like, oh, yeah, this is what they're saying, and this is basically what it means. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I kind of recognize it because I understand idioms. They're memes. Yeah. It's, it's part of my main language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my primary language. So I, uh, I understand when they're being used. I don't always understand what they're trying to come across as, but I understand when they're being used. Uh, and in this case, uh, I really liked it. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, carrying on to the... Into the third and fourth acts. The third and fourth acts, yeah. Where we have all the drama, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the first part was a little bit of comedy because of the way that they're interacting with each other and introducing the characters, showing the joys of life. And then, of course, you have to have that uh, that contrast. Right. The darker side of it all. And I do like how they actually dimmed the lights in this... Uh, in this iteration, mm-hmm. it made everything a little bit darker and more gloomy to kind of show you that it's not it's not as colorful as it was before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very subtle and nice thing to do. One thing that I will point out that I guess makes this production special is that um, this is a recreation of a production that was done in the 80s. And I, 
uh, you know, my, my names are failing me in terms of who was the creative mind at the Met who uh, devised, like, the sets and everything uh, the first time. But this is, um, in a way, this is probably the best way to introduce someone to this opera because it's set in the time period that it was written for, and they try to approach it that same way in terms of costuming, um, the design of the buildings and everything like that, and just the way everyone's going to look, as opposed to what you might do nowadays, where a lot of uh, places try to spruce it up a little bit, and they might even translate it into the, uh, the vernacular of wherever it's being done. So if it was being done in Canada, it might be done in English. Or Maybe if it was French. Done... Okay, depends on <laughs> where in Canada you are. That is an option. Uh, if you're in Germany, uh, you might do it in German, which of course means that you have to now translate all those idioms out because now it's for the people that are listening and you're probably not going to have subtitles. The reason why they have the surtitles, as we call them in the industry, is specifically for the people where they you are not translating the language so that they know what the heck is going on. Um, and like you said, generally speaking, a lot of those idioms and sometimes simple words like every time they said hello or goodbye or what's going on, that sort of thing, they didn't translate that because you probably heard it 50, 60 times across the entire thing. So by this point, Hopefully you know that andiam means let's go and that adio means farewell. Or, you know, there are other things that they didn't add that was okay, like light the match. Right, exactly. Or yeah. strike the match because mm -hmm. they were doing that action as they said it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was just kind of a pointless thing to make you have to read and that would take away from you actually enjoying watching the performance. Exactly. So surtitles have only been around for maybe a little bit longer than we've been alive. Um, for most of the 20th century, uh, generally speaking, unless this was the Met or uh, one of the other, like the Comish Opera House in Berlin or um, some of the other uh, big ones around the world whose names, again, are just fleeing my mind, Usually you would translate the opera because most of the people that you're selling tickets to can't speak Italian or French or German or Russian or Czech or whatever they language. They don't speak any language that isn't the primary there. Exactly. So you would translate it because that way people actually know what the heck is going on. Because generally speaking, most people want to understand what's going on. And just reading a synopsis in their program isn't enough. Yeah. Um, and then in, I think it must have been the mid-80s or something like that, it was actually uh, in Canada where they developed the idea of surtitles, which is we will give poetic translations in the vernacular and we will have that on the screen. So again, you get the feeling of what is being spoken, but you're not translating word for word, so you're not stuck there looking at it and missing what is actually happening. Yeah, which is one of the great issues with subs versus dubs. Right. So they found a happy medium, which I think is very enjoyable and uh, quite nice. 
Another thing that they have in here that I think that movie theaters really need to re-employ... Intermission? Yes. <laughs> uh, intermissions, I think, are an excellent thing to allow people to take a break, step away from it all, use the bathroom, maybe even go get some extra food because they're running out of food or drink. Mm-hmm. Which is like another investment capital that they're totally missing out on. Why are they not reusing this? Like, it's not too hard to just like cut the or stop the the movie at a certain point where tensions are high or anything like that stop for 15 minutes mm-hmm. let the, everybody leave and come back like stretch your legs there's there there's been a couple times where i went to a movie that was like two and a half or three hours long and i'm yep. like i need to stand up like i can't keep sitting like this this is uh uncomfortable honestly i agree um and what's even more interesting so i mean old films if it was i think it was basically if you were like over 100 minutes then you would potentially have an intermission because now you're getting to the point of okay we're gonna have to think about having an intermission because people need to get up and stretch and they need to go use the bathroom and things like that we're going to be nice to the audience which of course means that you need to add the intermission into your runtime because you can't just stop the film and start the film again. Yeah. Whereas these days, like we totally could. You can we just pause could. it, and or you can just have like a scene break where it's just like, okay, this is the point. You push pause, and everyone gets up for 10, 15 minutes, and they walk outside, and then they all come back, and then you push play again, and you just keep going. It's so weird because. We have well, the technology to do this, but well, we don't. and not just that. It's also the fact that there seemed to be a trend where films were just kind of being shorter, unless it was going to be something that was a huge epic like Titanic or something Lord like that. For, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And um, they kind of incorporated, since it's modern technology, the idea of, okay, we're going to pause or we're going to give people breaks because these are long movies. Um but most of the time, they don't do that anymore. And they're just like, oh, well, I guess you have to come back and see the movie again if you had to get up and, you know, use the washroom or something like that, which I don't Means know. you'll I, probably miss it the same time. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I don't really agree with that thinking. But then again, considering that opera is my profession, I am used to intermissions because <laughs> they never left. Yeah. It used to be. That for a four-act opera like this, you had like a five, ten-minute intermission between every act. You don't necessarily do that anymore because most people don't need that time. But that used to be the way it was. And who's to say we can't go back to that? Progression, my friend. Progression. Yeah, but is it is it really progress, though? I mean, uh, progress towards something you don't like is still progress. Okay, fair enough. Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> uh, this actually is really funny that we're talking about this because th- just this morning I saw a video from YouTube from a guy that I really respect and I like a lot of his work. His name is the uh, Technology Connection or mm-hmm. Connections Technology. Which uh, Technologies Connection. I think it is, which uh, is his uh, YouTube name. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he actually goes through and talks about different forms of technology and how they've uh, how they've changed, what they've improved, and what's not improved. Uh, the first thing that really introduced me to his channel was actually lanterns because yeah, I was looking I was just, at getting some lanterns. I was just thinking about that because he did the thing for uh, storm lanterns, yeah. right? 
Yeah, or, he kind of showed uh, how they work. Was it Hurricane? Hurricane, Hurricane Lanterns. Hurricane yeah. Lanterns, yeah. And then, you know, they also talked about the Aladdin lamps and mm-hmm. uh, other lanterns as well to help get rid of the soot and everything. Yeah. Talk about the reason why they were designed the way they were designed. So the, the video that he kind of posts uh, while we're recording this is uh, one for a what was called a safe can opener. Hmm. Now, he talks about how for the longest time, can openers were always needed. But nothing improved with them. And why is that? Because... It just works, right? Yeah, it works. And it's it's fine. And he even talks about this at the end of his episode. You know, we have to stop saying, this is fine. Mm. Like, yeah, I've got an old wooden ladder that's 70 years old. It's rickety and wobbles a lot. But it works fine. <laughs> so I don't need to go out and get a proper safe ladder that's going to support me and be able to do everything I need to do. Because this one works fine. Clearly, it's not safe, but it still works fine. So, uh, that's kind of the thing about it. Progression is very much the same way. It only gets trumped by ignorance of moving forward. Well, let's pull things back to talking about the opera. And Well, actually, now we should probably, yes, actually dive into what was happening in this opera. And a good way to do that is to talk about our characters. So, let's look at our lovely cast. We have... Um, in a way, you'd say the primo uomo, the first man, Rodolfo, the tenor, who is a poet. And well, you said something about poets when we were watching this. What was yes, that? never date poets because uh, they're going to talk way too long and their stanzas are short. Oh, <laughs> ouch. Oh, poor Rodolfo. He tries. <laughs> Um, what did you think of, uh, uh, what did you think of like Rodolfo as a character? He was a pretty decent character. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know if I'd say he's one dimensional. He feels it a little bit, but, uh, uh, I mean, that might just be the way operas work. Yeah. I was going to say, we're going to have to, we're going to, you know, put a pin in that because that is something that I do want to talk about. So (laughs) We'll get back to that in just a second, all yeah. right? Uh, but no, uh, the guy who portrayed him was great, but my only other complaint is uh, everybody on the set was way too fat to be poor. <laughs> Which is also something else that we can talk about. <laughs> all right. Um, next, we move, move on to our prima donna, um, Mimi, uh, who is a seamstress who is suffering from tuberculosis and ultimately succumbs to it. Um, a seamstress? I thought she was a flower maker. Uh, so the whole thing with the whole flower thing is that she puts flowers on to close. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. I must yeah. have missed that in the, the reading aspect. That, that's, that's okay. It's a little it's, subtle, maybe. It, yeah, I mean, it's there, but to be honest, it's something that I forget sometimes too. But then again, I'm a baritone, so I don't necessarily care about their relationship too much because I'm more interested in our next guy, Marcello, the painter. Well, as a baritone, you like the cello? Oh, God. God, I don't don't even know how to respond to that, Miles. Um... Marcello, he's a painter. He has a weird thing going on with Musetta that there's probably lots of things that can be talked about with that, but 
What do you think of Marcello? I actually like his character. He's very well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he feels more fleshed out than Rodolfo does. Yes, he definitely does. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Then but we... I mean, it could just be the poet's, uh, the issue of the poet, you know, they're always brokenhearted and they're lovesick. Because right. that's how they, uh, that's how they think they'll make their money. Uh, okay, I see. Poetry is so much more than just love and death. It, there's way more to it. And I guess a lot of people kind of forget that. Uh, yeah. Um, and then speaking of, that means we have Musetta, who is a free-spirited woman that, uh, I mean, it says in the description of her character that she's a singer, but she doesn't really, that's only important in Act 3. What's really important is the fact that she has Marcello under her thumb. And as the Flanders children would say, she's a harlot. Hey, I said she's a free-spirited woman, Okay. <laughs> I don't have a problem with how she conducts herself. Others might. I don't. What about you? Oh, no. She is who she is. And if that if uh, Marcello can't handle that, then honestly, he needs to step to the side and leave. And just allow her to continue being what she is, right? Yeah. And then we finally have... I feel like we've had a character that had this same, very similar conundrum before. In we, something we've watched. We probably have. Um, I mean, in a way, you could maybe see that that is the dynamic that we have between Alma and Sam in Undone. Yeah, that's 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 who it was. Yes, that's that's exactly <laughs> with, correct. With Sam, be, I mean, with Sam being the Marcello and, of course, Alma being the Musetta, although... I mean, yeah, definitely in terms of personality, very much paralleled here. Uh, although not necessarily in what their actions actually barred out to. Anyways, then we have our final two of the circle of friends. We have Colline, the philosopher, and Chonard, the musician. So what did you think of these two? I, um, I feel it's fair to call them a couple. <laughs> yes. They're very much into each other, but uh, not like that in this case. It depends on what your director wants and also what your uh, performers that are portraying these two want, because this is something that I have heard talk of amongst other people, that sometimes you could consider Coline and Chonard a couple, as in like they're, they are lovers and things like that. Like You could play that dynamic out. You don't it's have true. to. But it is an option. Why do I get the feeling that there's very much a uh, working girl, the musical conundrum going on here from Bob's Burgers <laughs> with Tina being like, oh, I'm going to be with this guy. And right, the yeah. lead singer being like, no, you're not. That's not part of it. He's like, oh, well, I'm taking a, a, cre a creative uh, creative license, yeah, right? I'm taking the it's in my creative field here. No, it's not. Not at all. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, so what did you think of these two? Um, it, 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 and I mean, again, because I really enjoyed when they're talking about how Mimi has uh, cello under his under his under her thumb or or so wait, do you mean? Oh, right. When Musetta shows yeah, up, when right? Musetta shows up. Yeah. yeah right. Musetta shows up and starts, uh, you know, showing flaunting yeah. and everything, trying mm -hmm. to get him to do something. And he just ends up. He he's he ends up getting played like a like a jaw harp there. <laughs> a jaw harp, of course. Can't use the same instruments as as uh, the era. Oh, wouldn't okay. be fair. 
So instead of him being played like a fiddle, he's played like a jaw harp yep. instead, huh? Okay. <laughs> oh, man. There's a few other, you know, there's... Uh, we also have technically... Uh, Benoit is the name of the landlord, and uh, we don't ever actually hear it in... I don't believe they ever say it, but the guy that Musetta shows up with in Act 2, his name is Alcindoro, and he is like a politician or something like that. Generally speaking, that is a role that is played by like a character singer, um, and so they will do both of those roles. Because they're effectively doing the same thing. Yeah. Their characters are the same. So what did you think about that character? Felt bad for him. I mean, like, he in got bo- pretty In both used. instances? Yeah. Or, okay. He got pretty, pretty used. You felt bad for the landlord? <laughs> you felt... Yeah, he went, there to get pay- he went there to get his rent because, like, you know, money due is money due. And right. at the end of the day, he ended up not getting any money. He just got kicked out. He got he got the ability to tell a story and then got kicked out and shamed for it. Now, since they come back to the loft in Act 4, I presume at some point someone did actually pay him. Because after six months, and it has to have been at least six months since when we started, or in terms of how much rent they owe, at some point... You're just going to throw them out. Like, especially in that day. Like, these days, maybe yeah. you can, like, you know, go to the uh, to the rent board or something like that. Now we have things set up that can give the, the renter a little bit, the tenant a little bit more um, safety. But back in those days, I mean, they can just kick you out whenever the heck they want. You could, but you also got to remember that sometimes, especially with these four people... They can be very good gaslighters. <laughs> I mean, it's. I guess it's good that the, uh, that they know how to uh, survive. Yep, this is an urban survival check that uh, they are acing, if you ask me. Okay, um, and so uh, with the politician in Act 2, with Musetta, you feel sorry for him? I mean, actually, that one, I guess, just... You know, like he's just sense. being himself and he's like finds a girl he finds attractive and wants to settle down and do you know get friendly with right and that but at the end of the day she's like no i am who i am and you can't have me that's kind of a it's not wrong of her to do mm-hmm. but it is wrong of her to lead him along have him buy her everything and then end up just like screwing off with some other guy so as opposed to having an established understanding of him being a sugar daddy, instead she just sweeps him along thinking that he's going, he's getting something which he honestly isn't. Yes. Okay. So if it was the other way around where she, where he is still just kind of being like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're doing this out in public sort of thing, you know... It's kind of annoying, but at the same time, if they had that establishment of like, yes, 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 I will pay for these things because that's just what type of relationship we have, then it's less of an issue. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, the the boundaries were clearly defined, where in this case, they absolutely weren't. Okay. He was was not happy about it all. (laughs) It was very, uh, 
is very like set in stone in how he reacted. All right. So this leads to some pretty cool things to talk about. So the way the story frames it is that everything that Rodolfo, Mimi, Marcello, Musetta, Colina, and Shonard do is all good. They're the good di- they're the good guys in this story, right? And so they're them, the protagonists, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so them kicking Benoit out and not having to pay their rent is a good thing. Uh Musetta abandoning Alcindoro and leaving him with both bills to pay and then just like never showing up again. That is seen as a good thing. So well What's your take on that? Um, well, I don't believe in good or evil. Mm, There's okay. no such thing as black and white. Uh, all we have are just different shades of gray. So to me, it, the way they portray it, yeah, I can I can see it. Mm-hmm. Like it's clear, but it doesn't mean I agree with it. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I've always been somebody who kind of looks at the outliers and say, well, what's going on over there? Then again, I suffer. I might suffer a lot from that. Uh, what's that German term, where you uh, pass somebody, and like you can, for that brief moment that you pass them, you realize that they have their entire life around them, and none of that involves you. Oh, ah, uh, shoot! I know what term you're referring to as well, but uh, I can't remember. I'm not remembering right now what the heck it's called either. Because for a moment, I thought you were immediately just going to jump to schadenfreude. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you take pleasure in others' pain? What? What the heck does that have to do with gray, with, with black and white and gray, Miles? That makes no sense. <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, so with that in mind, how... Likely would you be to watch more operas, especially older ones that very much fall into that dichotomy of you have the protagonists who are good, and then you have the antagonists who are bad. And all the happy music goes towards the protagonists and all the really mean and depressing or just evil sounding music goes towards the antagonists. What are your thoughts on that? There's not really a whole lot of gray in older operas. <laughs> well, it is what it is. And like I said, it's I accept it for the product of the time it is. Mm, okay. But of course, we don't live in a world that is so black and white. And no matter how much people try to portray it for simplistic sake, mm-hmm. uh, it, really t- it can really take away from what actually is. Mm, okay. Um, like I said, I don't necessarily hate it for it. Right. Uh, I accept it for what it is, but I can accept something without agreeing with it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so um, actually, before we jump into that thing, so because uh, I just realized that there's a couple other operas that I really want to watch with you because they're operas that, again, are set up with this black and white dichotomy of whole, you know, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys, and sometimes, you know, bad things still happen to the good guys by way of the good guys sometimes they try to input a little bit of gray into it but there are a couple operas that I really like because of the music in them but as far as stories go I'm just like man everyone in here sucks except for that person and that person died 
And that was tragic because they didn't have to because they only died because everyone else sucks. And for whatever reason... Didn't we see a movie like that too? Recently? Actually, that's true. Actually, now that I think about it, that is basically what we saw with Repo. Yeah, that was Repo. Because <laughs> that's, uh, that's Blind Meg. Yeah, look at that. It is an opera. <laughs> huh, proved you wrong. <laughs> well, like I said... It has operatic aspects in it. That's why I con- that's why I call it a musical experience. <laughs> Just like an opera. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a few others that I do want to watch with you. Just to like kind of hear your opinions on them and kind of see if they end up tracking with mine. Because <laughs> I just love how you're like, you know, oh, the genetic opera is not an opera. I it's never... a musical experience. And I'm like, okay, that's not a dog. It's a heckin' pupper. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, there are some of us that live under technicalities. And I am one of those people. Well, there's, I would, no te- is, there's no technology here, so... <laughs> see, this is why I know I would be a very good bureaucrat. I don't know if I would necessarily love it, but I know that I would be very good at it. <laughs> um, so now maybe we'll move it, uh, towards some other things that are just kind of about opera. So you were kind of commenting on how, oh, I can't really necessarily take these people seriously as being poor because they look so well fed yes so this is an interesting thing that i have heard people say about opera a whole lot and a lot of times also when people see me and they think oh you do opera i thought all all opera singers are fat and i was like uh well maybe it used to be only the successful ones (laughs) well okay so i'll punch you in the shoulder here (laughs) okay so there's also that if they're successful they're well fed because they're well taken care of and they're well paid right but then there's also the aspect of if you are these people that are getting paid to be the um uh, uh, the principals for a metropolitan opera show. Yeah, that probably means they got, you know, like $30,000 for that one show. Um, and then they probably have several other shows or gigs throughout the year. And they're probably hauling in, you know, maybe if they are really, really, really good, they're making six figures or something like that. And there's me, you know, just like scrambling away trying to make sure that I can maybe pay taxes this year or something like that. <laughs> um, well, it's a tough gig. Yeah, it's a really tough gig. And that's one thing that uh, a lot of people don't really f- realize is that it's very competitive. And unfortunately, over here, it's damn near not lucrative, well, which sucks. Yes, there is also a little bit of that as well, which, you know, there there are cultural aspects of it. And there's a mm, whole lot of social political reasons for why in North America, opera is not on the same level as it is in, uh, well, maybe not every part of the world, but very much so in like Asia and Europe. I was actually kind of talking about this the other day with uh, my uh, D&D group about uh, like opera and all that kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. uh, they were like, yeah, we don't really have an emphasis on the arts here. Or they started off with like everybody else has a really big emphasis on arts. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, 
except for us, because we're not allowed to have that, because we are wage slaves and we have to do as we're told and not enjoy anything. And then they're like, oh my God, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, that is definitely not a not an incorrect way to look at it. You know, that basically just means that we are all in our own ways, Rodolfo's, Marcello's, Colines, and Chonard's. We're just struggling to have something that is joyful and also be paid for doing that as well. Yeah. Because that's the other thing. I mean, <clears throat> I get the feeling that these guys probably could just go out and be laborers. It would suck. But then that means they can't be artists either because... They're tired at the end of the day because when you're digging ditches, especially back in the 1830s, you're digging ditches for like 12 hours a day and you're tired. 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, hey, if there's a war going on or something like that or a plague comes through, there are a lot. Of, well, well, I guess that's maybe grave diggers. But, you know, great ditch digger, grave digger. Eh. You probably get hired by both people. Yep. You got to dig a hole. Just... Go out there and be the best damn ditch digger you can be. Exactly, exactly. Um, I mean... No, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I was going to go on something where I knew it was going to just take us on like a, a sidetrack. And I'm like, no, I don't want to actually do that. Uh, so, I mean, we can talk and talk all we want about how opera and the arts in general, the performing arts... Uh, definitely deserves a little bit more love in North America. But to go back to my original thing that I was saying about opera stars, opera singers are fat. So this kind of goes back into a kind of an older belief, which was all you had to do as a singer was take care of your voice. You're not really expected to go out there and act. You're expected to go out there and sing beautifully and everybody loves it because opera singers are the Olympic athletes of singing in terms of your ability, uh, how well trained you are and what your performance capability is. So, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can sacrifice time for taking care of the rest of your body. And there was also just this older thought of, well, I don't need to. I don't need to go out and run and do things because I'm successful. I can pay people to do that for me. Or people will do that for me because they know who I am. Whereas these days, now opera stars look fit. Or they look... Maybe not necessarily well-fed, but they definitely don't look Malnourished fat. or that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and again, this will probably vary from place to place as well. Because um, while there's a few singers that I have seen, that I have followed, that uh, they probably look like they run marathons in their spare time. And there aren't really a lot of them that look like that. However, in me saying that, Miles, if you saw someone who looked like that in this role, would you still have the same problem? Probably. Like you Probably have, even more so. Like you have a guy where in the few times where they show any kind of skin and like he's got veins sticking out of his arms because he looks like he's a power lifter or something <laughs> like that. What would your reaction be to that? Uh, I'd kind of be a little suspicious as well because that's that's even more so difficult to maintain. 
<laughs> uh, having like muscular definition is a very difficult thing to maintain. It requires a lot of work. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize it. Like um, one of the things that I've noticed uh, and I've talked about with a lot of people is everybody goes like, oh, Aboriginal people are like so fit. And I'm like, no, no, that's not who they were originally supposed to be. That That's an, an actual force to change that uh, our residential schools and that kind of did. Uh, that's not how they're supposed to be. Uh, if you take a look at Cree people, they're actually supposed to have a little bit of fat on them. Why? Well, they're living in tents in the middle of winter. Yep. <laughs> like you got to have some of that beef on you, yep. a little bit of fat to insulate you. Fat is an excellent insulation. Mm-hmm. That's And that's why it's such a high fat diet too. Like pemmican, yep. the, the bison meat, pretty much everything in the diet is made to make sure that you do not freeze to death. Yep. That's exactly it. And, uh, you know, so seeing especially is one of my big issues with Pocahontas uh, from Disney. <laughs> it's like they're so muscular and it's like, who the hell are you trying to impress here? <laughs> like, Miles, I thought you hadn't seen Disney movies before. Oh, I have seen a few, but uh, not all of them. Oh, not all of them, huh? Hmm. I think that might be... <laughs> Might have to hold on to something like Everybody's that. Everybody's been hounding on me for years and years going, oh, you haven't seen all of these Disney movies? And I, I, I'm just saying, you know what? Fine. I'm going to watch all the Disney movies. Not just the Renaissance era. Not just the after Renaissance. <laughs> all, all of Disney. Of them. <laughs> including all of their war movies that people don't realize they've done. Oh, man. Those war movies are great. I know. <laughs> He had some fun stuff like Donald Duck, you know, taking on Hitler. My fear. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like all of their training videos that they have for like uh, being a tail gunner. Yep. All sorts of things. Well, that was a genius idea, but I mean, we should get back on topic here. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Um, <laughs> it, um, I, I just kind of wanted to address that because it's it's something it's funny because it is something that I still do hear very often. And it's one of those things where I sit there going, so when you see a hockey player that is out of their equipment, do you just like go, oh, you're a hockey player? I never would have guessed. Uh, it depends on the hockey player, because if they're uh, if they're a uh, if they like a bruiser like... or something like that, like oh, if they're yeah. if they're only there to hurt other people mm-hmm. and not uh you know pass the puck around and score goals mm-hmm. uh an enforcer i guess you'd say right i call him a sokol uh because of the the payday game right but uh if you're just there to like hit them by all means pack on that weight slam them up against the the uh slam them against the boards the boards and that you know you're you're gonna be doing the job just fine as long as if you can catch them Put on that extra weight. That way, when you hit them, it's it's even worse. <laughs> As opposed to if you see like Connor McDavid, you know, out in the day to day life, or Wayne Gretzky, you know, if we're talking twenty years ago, back when he was still playing. <laughs> I was gonna say like nowadays, Wayne Gretzky does not look like a hockey player, <laughs> but uh, you know, time time makes fools of us all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I don't know. I just I just wanted to touch on that because it's. It is it's interesting because it's something that I hear so often and I'm always just kind of like, do we I mean, we're not fat, no. And I mean I don't know. That just feels like these days I don't know. Like the the days of 
the of the heroin chic, you know, thin as a rail are behind us. I like to think there are probably still some people that are rich enough to go with that lifestyle, but most people generally don't look like that. It's very true. And even the ones that are rich enough to be able to afford to do that, they don't look like that because it's not fashionable anymore. And it's difficult. It's it's hard to hold and maintain. Yeah, yeah, that too. I have uh, heard a lot of that from friends of mine that uh, are in like the fitness business where they talk about, oh yeah, when you see, you know, Henry Cavill shirtless and, you know, that one scene or whatever from, okay, any movie where he has to take his shirt off, which is lots of them. <laughs> when you look that good, you got to show it off, right? And they explained to me, oh yeah, you know, he probably had to do that two-day, uh, you know, like cram himself full of like sugar and stuff like that to really like beef up his muscles and then he just dehydrates himself for 24 hours to get that cut look. You can't do that for extended periods because you'll hurt yourself. It just reminds me of the good place with the uh, the one demon who looks like a fireman and who's always taking his shirt off. Oh, uh. Hilarious. <laughs> Such um, a good show. <laughs> okay, so to get into the opera again. So in opera, generally speaking, you have two genres. You have either tragedies or you have comedies. At least that's the way it was for most of like the 1600s and 1700s and then a little bit into the 1800s. And then it started to change a little bit. So now things are not strictly comedy or tragedy anymore. Now, upon looking at this, what would you consider La Boheme? I would say it's a tragedy. All right. And why would you think that? Because the character dies in the end, one of the main ones. And uh, everybody's sad about it. It's not like they're passing jokes about it. They're they're very somber. By all means, they have some comedy in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But that's just to help contrast and really deliver that uh, blow in the end. Okay. All right. I just was curious what you would think about that because... For older ones, um, I mean, again, this first came out in 1896, so the 1800s were almost behind us. So for, again, the previous, like, 250, almost 300 years, most operas, if it's tragedy, there is no comedy. There might be a little light scene between, for, like, the chorus or something like that. But generally speaking, if you're doing something like Lucia de Lammermoor, it's... Hard drama all the time because everybody dies in the end. It's like there's maybe two or three characters that are are left standing by the end of the opera. As opposed to comedies where, generally speaking, people don't die. There's nothing funny about death. Or at least that's not what they think. Well, so, then they're wrong. <laughs> I Right? <laughs> I can think of plenty of uh, comedies that uh, have to do with death. Take a look at uh, Herb Kazaz. Well, he beat I, cancer and then died from a peanut allergy. <laughs> well, I was even just thinking of specific films like In a car accident. <laughs> I, I was just thinking of specific films like Death of Stalin, for example. That is very much just a comedy, comedy of errors, comedy of tra you know tragedy, you know whatever. So you would consider this one more of a tragedy purely. And not really like a, a tragic comedy, tra tragic comedy. 
I'd say whatever. it's more of a comic tragedy. Okay. But uh, it has a little elements, bit right? of humor in the beginning. But like I said, that's more to it's more to contrast about the death. Gotcha. Because uh, of course the comedy doesn't happen in the second half. Right. So it it immediately gets cut out. It's just used to kind of like it. It's your roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. You have to go up in order to come down. So if you don't go up, then your your drop down isn't as bad. Mm-hmm. So that is actually a really good uh, way to look at it. <clears throat> um, because even in Act Four, we have the brief little scene where all four of them, all four of the of the bros, are back together and they're goofing off and things like that. And that's a couple minutes before Musetta crashes the party. Yep, <laughs> with a tying Mimi. Ah, so getting into the story, what was your favorite part? Ooh, that's difficult. <sighs> <laughs> that's difficult because it's so organic it really flows into itself mm-hmm. um so there wasn't a specific time that you were watching that you just kind of were struck by "Ooh, i like this i'm gonna remember this like this specific part not entirely um one part that did stand out to me was the uh the toy seller Oh, yeah. Uh, Parpignol is his name. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, he's sort of, uh, he doesn't really pertain to the plot. It's just sort of like... He's just part of the the people selling their wares when they're out in the market. Yeah, it had very little to actually do with the fact that he's part of the cast and what's going on. He's just in the backdrop. And I don't really want to say that because then it kind of takes away from the rest of the story and makes people... It might make people think, oh, well, he liked the backdrop more than the actual story. No, no, that's not a bad thing, though. Like, this is one of the, this is also one of the reasons why I look at Bohem as a good intro opera for people that aren't really into opera, because of the fact that, as you've said, it's so organic. And the fact that you're able to look at something that happened in the backdrop and say, I really like that part, that says a lot about trying to make it seem real. Because if I were to show you, like, a Mozart opera or something, you'd probably look at the chorus scenes as just being really perfunctory and why were these even here sort of thing. What was the point? So, because you're saying this, I'm going to have to show you another show. Okay. A show where literally the backdrop takes over the whole show. And uh, What show is this called? I'm not going to say until we do it. Oh, okay. But I'm going to have to introduce it to you, and uh, (laughs) I think you'll be solar opposite about it. Okay. Okay, I see. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, but I mean, again, I look at you saying that, that you really liked Parpignol, as well, a, as a I, good I remember thing. it. I remember that. Yeah, but part. that's good too. Yeah. If that is something that sticks with you, that's important. Um, okay, well, you say that, but remembering that the powerhouses are the, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell is not that important, but it still stuck with me. <laughs> but 
it is important. It is important to remember that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And That's about, how everything works. What about the gland above the uh, penguin's nose that filters salt from water? The what? There's a gland above the penguin's nose that filters salt from salt water, so that way they can have drinkable water. I mean, that is also kind of... Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's cool, yeah, but I don't have to remember it. I'm not a, I'm not a marine biologist. <laughs> so what? I put furnaces in. I make warm air happen and cool air happen even more. <laughs> Come on, that's like saying that you don't appreciate understanding the difference between gas operated or the different types of gas operation for firearms versus you know simple blowback or delayed blowback or inertial. Uh, recoil and that sort of thing. And everybody listening to us right now is like, those are the same thing. <laughs> I mean, are they though? No, they're not. Not at all. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> it's like the difference between miles, miles. <laughs> the difference is how it's spelt and what it means. <laughs> yes. Yes, it absolutely is. So, well, so my favorite part of this opera is another small bit. Because, you know, Parpignol is on stage for, like, two minutes. <coughs> Maybe two minutes. And this also, the thing that always sticks to me from this opera is when Colline gets to sing. When he sings his little aria about having to sell his coat so that he too can take a part in trying to either save Mimi or just make her comfortable in her last moments. And it doesn't last very long. It's like a minute that he sings. But there's this whole thing about how he's a man of few words and he's a philosopher and all that. So when he gets up to talk, it's important. So you so everything in the show just kind of stops and focuses it on him for a minute. And again, it's also just really Cute is not the right word, but there's just something so just mm, not nostalgic. It's uh, it's warm. It's, it's yeah, it's memorable. Exactly, and it's comforting to sh to see how much he cares as well. Even um, though it was all kind of for naught, because he could have just covered her with the jacket. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is why he's a philosopher and not an actual... Uh, not a doctor. <laughs> you know, not an uh, engineer or something like that. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't necessarily know if I would say most of these people are the smartest out there. I mean, even if we think about the the costumes that we have for this show, when Mimi first shows up and she has like a shawl on her, and the shawl is like full of holes. And I'm just wondering, what the heck is up with this? Yeah, How is she going to stay warm with that? There's just holes everywhere. Especially when you think about that dress. It has that giant hole in the bottom. Like, what the hell? But that's how... Okay. Uh... Uh, all right. Well, we'll, we'll move along from that. Jeez. Uh, how did you walk into that one? <laughs> um, I don't know. What one would think you'd actually have to step into it, pull it over you, and then strap it up. Oh, but 
Yeah. What? Uh, how? How is it? Uh, we put our pants on both legs at a time. Or wait, no, no, wait, no, 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 no. no. That's not. That's not what he says. We both put our bras on one leg at a time. That's what he said. <laughs> Who said that one again? That's oh. Abe from Clone High. That's right. Yeah, we put our bras on one leg at a time. Yep. <laughs> Mix up our idioms. You open uh, this can of worms now. Lay in it. <laughs> I know. Well, you know. I or, no, no, they're not idioms. Those are uh, antonyms. Yeah, right. I think that's what the term is. Let me, let me make sure I get that I right. I think so. I mean, homonyms I know are things that are like the... Actually, I think homonyms has more to do with like uh, specific words and not whole phrases. But perhaps it's also extended out into... Malifors. Malifors. Right. Malifors. Yes. Because you think it's the correct thing, but it's wrong. And you've... No, no, it's when you mix up metaphors. Or, yes, you right. You get malaphors. Yeah, right. So like when you say... Uh, you miss the forest for the lake? Yeah, you miss the forest. Or uh, you miss the... You miss the lake through the forest. Yeah. So you, know, you can't see the lake through the water, or you can't see the forest through the trees, but you take those two and you put them together. Yeah, exactly. Or like I said, if you open a can of worm, or you opened your can of worms now laying it, yeah, instead exactly. of you made your bed laying yep. it, or you opened your can of worms now eat it. Yeah. You mix them. Who says you opened your can of worms now eat it? I've never heard the last bit. That's of that. just one that's everybody has. Everybody just knows I'm going to open a can of worms. Yeah. You know, the the elephant in the room, right? Yes. <laughs> or some of my other favorite idioms, such as, uh, I see this isn't your first panic at the disco. Uh, or you can lead a horse to evanescence, but you can't bring it back to life. <laughs> oh, God, that's horrible. You know, that's just, uh, I wouldn't say I feel everyone is dumber <laughs> for having heard it, but it's certainly getting there sometimes. Oh, they're cultural malifors. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose they are. <laughs> um, so, uh, so again, to kind of go back to what you were saying all the way at the beginning about how you're not really fond of musicals in a way, but opera, this worked for you. Um, is there anything more that you can kind of, I guess, bring out about it that what necessarily worked for you? I think it's, it's because of that flow. Um, a lot of mu musicals, I find, the emphasis is so hard on the music that it's mm -hmm. like the show stops in between each musical. Ah. And in this case, that was not the issue because everything, everything kind of flowed along. through. Right. And it, I mean, it's the exact same with the genetic opera. Right. It, everything just kind of flowed through. And even if they weren't singing to each other in their like small little bits, right. it was like they were warming up to do their next vocal and they were still putting that effort in to continue it forward and it didn't feel like it was being cut and paced and then how are we going to link song a to song b well we can do this way and uh like i said like you said it's organic it wasn't mm -hmm. mechanical yeah whereas all of these musicals that i've seen and heard are just like start stop start stop start stop it's it's traffic hmm okay feel like I need to go and just collect a couple of musicals that you haven't seen yet and maybe try to introduce them to you the same way as this because I feel like you just haven't seen the right musicals. Now granted this is coming from someone who sings for a living so of course I enjoy musicals as much as I enjoy operas. 
Although that's not always the case because as soon as you said, I've seen High School Musical and I'm sitting here going, man, I've only seen five minutes of that and that's enough. I did not need to see any more. It's true. <laughs> but I did see uh, Les Miserables. And, uh, Les Miserables? Les Miserables. <laughs> and uh, I felt it to just be not good. Fair enough. Well, you're talking about the the movie, right? That had huge jacked man in it? Yep. <laughs> hmm. And Sweeney Todd was also one I didn't really like. Okay. So, okay. again, it, it was just the way that it kind of... It just didn't flow well for me. That's fair. Yeah, no, I, I'm sitting here thinking, I feel like I need to actually have you watch actual staged musicals as opposed to the film adaptations of them, because I have my own list of issues with a lot of uh, adapted musicals for film, because most of them I find suck for various reasons that we can go into at another time. But what about movies that get turned into musicals like the Die Spam a lot. <laughs> Spam a lot was pretty great. Yep. <laughs> I can, see? I can see that. I can say that. <laughs> so sometimes it works. Like it. Work harder. Work harder. Die trying, girl. <laughs> <laughs> see, see. Sometimes it works. It, you just need to get find the right things to get it to to to. to you just need to find the right thing to do it with. Which, again, is why I picked Bohem for your first opera experience. Yes. And it sounds like you're more than happy to experience some more. So maybe next time... <laughs> Actually, no, we'll, we won't do that. But at some point in the future, I probably will have you watch Madame Butterfly just so that you truly understand what I was talking about with Mary and Max. I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, I'm willing to wait for it. Sounds good. Uh, in the meantime, the next time... Well, we'll see what's happening the next time, but for right now, uh, I've been Cam. And I'm Muzz. And we'll see you next time. See ya. <laughs>